As I said, this evening we are continuing, as you know, our study uh, of Mark. Mark is one of the four eyewitness accounts of the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you remember that Mark is writing this record to believers in Rome who are facing great persecution. Many are living underground, fearing for their lives. Many have lost everything for Christ. And in the middle of such great suffering as they are experiencing, I'm sure there are some of them who are asking, is Jesus still worth dying for? Is all of this still worth it? And Mark's answer to them, because he's also in Rome, is to show them through this, this gospel, this record, um, who Jesus really is, to show them that Jesus is really worth it. And that's what this book of Mark is intended to show us. It's intended to show us who Jesus is and what he has come to do in this world. And the book of Mark, which we've been studying, is divided in three parts, just to remind you. Mark chapter 1 to chapter 8 is about the ministry of Jesus in the province of Galilee. We looked at that. Mark chapter 8 to chapter 10 covers the journey to Jerusalem, and that journey ended this morning. Mark chapter 11 to chapter 16 is Jesus, is in, Jesus himself doing the ministry in Jerusalem, and of course, his passion. It covers his suffering and his resurrection. And this evening we are beginning that section. We are in Mark chapter 11, and we are looking at verse 1 to verse 11. Jesus is entering Jerusalem. And we can summarize this amazing event of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem within a simple, just one simple point. It says this, it teaches us that Jesus is God coming to rule over his people. Jesus is God coming to rule over his people. Look with me at Mark chapter 11 verse 1 there. Uh, it, actually, it is time, it is springtime at this time in, in verse 1. The time of the great Passover feast in Jerusalem. We are in the Jewish month of Nisan, which falls around April in our calendar. And this morning we saw Jesus and his disciples leaving, leaving Jericho, and they were met by blind Bartimaeus. They are on their last journey to Jerusalem, and the journey from Jericho to Jerusalem is 15 miles. It's a 15-mile journey. And this journey is, is taking them through an incredibly steep climb. They are going up, right? And uh, it's taking them through a bit of a desert region where our Lord Jesus endured temptation back in Mark chapter 1. And we can imagine as they are going up this steep route, the disciples are quite relieved uh, to finally see two small villages of Bethphage and Bethany by the Mount of Olives. And they must even be more relieved when they hear Jesus say, okay, we are coming to a stop, right? And uh, he wants them to go and find a donkey or a colt. And here is how Mark records it for us in verse 1 to verse 3. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you. 
And immediately as you enter it, you find the court, a young donkey, tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And we send it back here immediately. The geography experts tell us that the most likely town that Jesus is sending, sending these two disciples is Bethesda. It's much closer to where we think. It's by the, more closer to the road where Jesus is using. And when they get there, they find exactly what Jesus has told them. Let's read on verse 4 to verse 6. And they went away and found the coat tied at the door outside in the street. And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the coat? And they told them what Jesus had said and let them go. You know, as we read the Bible, we should, we, should, we should pause, we should reflect, and we should ask it important question. Mark has spent two verses on the temptation of Jesus in chapter 1. Uh, he spent, I think, three or four on the baptism, or three verses on the baptism of Jesus. So he's very economical with his use of verses. But when we come here, we find that Mark is spending six verses to tell us about a donkey being collected exactly as Jesus said. And so we must now ask ourselves, why is he doing that? Why worse, we might say, six verses? Why use so many verses on this? Well, the reason he's doing that is because this is reminding us that this Jesus is God himself walking on the road of Jericho. Jesus has demonstrated in these verses Attributes that only God has. Notice that Jesus has demonstrated his foreknowledge. He knows exactly the precise details of where the court will be found. That there will be people standing there who will ask what they are doing. Only God has such foreknowledge. And this is not the first time Jesus is going to do this. He will later, remember when they are preparing the upper room, he will give them in Mark chapter 14, I think, specific instructions where they will find these things. So Jesus is demonstrating that he is God by his foreknowledge, his advanced knowledge, his specific knowledge of situation. But he's also demonstrating that he's God by his authority here. Did you notice the reason for the, the disciples had to give for taking the animal? Did you notice that? In verse, in verse 3, the reason is that the Lord has need of it. They are to go and take this animal, which doesn't belong to Jesus. And the reason they are to be given is that Jesus needs it. Not Jesus, the Lord needs it. He's claiming authority over the animal. Jesus is God who is full of authority over our lives and the things we own. He owns everything you have. And that's why when we encourage people to give things, to, to give money to the church, we are always reminding them that no, you're not giving God. You're just returning what already belongs to God. And when you don't give God, you're actually robbing God, we are taught in Malachi. So Jesus is God who owns everything. And you, but you notice the beauty of Jesus here. Did you notice how mindful he is of them? Or of us? Because in verse 3 we are taught, when they ask, why are you doing this? They have to say, the Lord has need of it. And we'll send it back 
here immediately. He could just take eminent domain. He could just take first possession as God. But he says, no, I'll give it back to you. What a wonderful picture, isn't it? When we give things to God, God gives them back to us, actually. He's such a wonderful God. Therefore, we should never be afraid of giving our lives to him. You will never miss out by totally surrendering your life to Jesus. It looks like you're losing out. But remember, he, when, it's by gaining life on our terms that we lose it. But when we lose it to Jesus, when we lose the things we own to Jesus, we gain more. It's just the way scripture is. Now, of course, what we gain ultimately is eternal life. And God, of course, finds other ways to demonstrate that we belong to him in the way we live and he looks after us. But he's so mindful of us here. And they told them, we read in verse 6, and they told them what Jesus has said, and they let them go. And they recognized that, that Jesus has full authority. But there is an even more important detail we glanced over here in this story that reveals that Jesus is God among us. Did you spot it? What do you think it might be? It's in verse 2. Notice something interesting in verse 2. The donkey that they have brought to Jesus is one on which no human being has ever sat on. And when we read that, those wonderful details, we must ask, where in the Bible does God demand something like that? Where in the Bible does God demand, so to speak, to be transported by something no one has ever sat on? Well, in the Old Testament, of course, in general, we read that animals used in offering sacrifices to God were not supposed to have labored. So you can read about that in Numbers 19, verse 2, Deuteronomy 21, verse 3. Any animal sacrifices, they, are never, they were meant to have been animals that had not been yoked. They were to be animals that had not been used in labor. But more importantly, we remember that the Ark of the Covenant could only be carried by an animal that had also never been yoked. And we read about that in 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 7. So, so by Jesus saying that he can only himself ride an animal that has not been ridden, is saying that he is the true act of the covenant. He is the Holy One. The covenant of God on which the laws, which kept the laws of God has now arrived with laws written on his act. The Holy One of Israel is to be carried by a donkey no one has ever ridden. Jesus is God among his people. And the purpose for which he has come uh, is to rule us as the disciples have been desperately hoping already. And I can imagine their excitement as that donkey arrives and Jesus lets them put their coats, <laughs> their cloaks, on it to make it comfortable. Here is Mark again in verse 7. Look at that. And they brought the coat to Jesus. And, he threw, and they threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it. Oh beloved, there's so much in that. Giving ourselves, giving everything we have to Jesus. Making his journey in this world comfortable. I mean so many applications. And I'll leave you to consider them. But just freeze that picture first. 
What are we actually looking at here? Well, we are seeing Jesus, fundamentally, who has been walking and riding boats for the last three years, for the first time now riding an animal. Why is he riding this animal now? And, and why a donkey, not a horse? Well, the answer is that Jesus is declaring to us, not just that he is king, but what sort of king he is. You see, in the ancient Near East, when a city is conquered, the transport the winning, the winning king, the victorious king uses, when he visits the city, is a life and death issue. If he has defeated the town, you know, you see that in a lot of the ring stuff, you know, imagine that scenario, you know, the battle for Helm's Deep. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the, the city has been defeated. The transport that the king now is going to use when he knocks on the gate, right, is going to make a huge difference. If the king comes and knocks on the gate after defeating it, uh, knocks on the city, riding a white horse. Does that remind you of something? Riding a white horse of judgment. The people know they are being judged and they will now be destroyed forever. And one day we see Jesus ride a white horse. If the king comes riding a donkey, like Ibazan and one of these rich judges we see in the scriptures, they know he is coming in peace. Jesus is riding a donkey in Jerusalem because he's a true king of Salem. Remember, Jerusalem means city of peace. And Jesus is going into the city of peace to bring the true peace of God as God had long promised in Zechariah 9, verse 9. Those words in Zechariah 9, verse 9, God said this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a cot, the fowl of a donkey. As we look at Jesus riding into Jerusalem, the whole testament now comes alive. God's promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is being fulfilled. This is the eternal king who fulfills the Davidic covenant. God's promise in Isaiah 9, which we read in the prayer meeting this morning, is being fulfilled. This is the mighty God, wonderful counselor, the great light of God that has shone in the dark places. The government now is upon his shoulders. Isaiah 11, verse 1 to 10, is being fulfilled. The righteous branch of Jesse is now taking power, so to speak, is now being declared before the world. Jeremiah 23 verse 5 to 8 is being fulfilled. Ezekiel 32 verse 23 to 24 is being fulfilled. Micah 5 verse 2 to 4. All of these scriptures, we can go on and on and on. In Jesus, in this moment, we see a prophetic convergence. He is being declared as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He has come to rule his people. And therefore, he's, he has no problem now to make it known. He lets them shout it out, doesn't he? Look at verse 9 to verse 10. Verse 8 actually tells us, doesn't it? And many spread their cloaks on the, on the road, and others spread their leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Verse 9. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed 
is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. You know, there was a time when people in the world were addicted to flash mobs. Do you remember those, right? Flash mobs, right? It came and it went like the ice bucket challenge. No one does. It's not a cool thing to do a flash mob. Don't try it. <laughs> people will be like, why are you going on? That's, 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 that's out of fashion now. I don't know what the in thing is now, but uh, I'm sure there is. Uh, but flash mobs there are. Well, it still helps us to think that what's happening here is a bit of a, like a flash mob. Except in a flash mob, it's planned, isn't it? And it's for entertainment. But this, but this, is, is, this, is, this, is, this is history happening. It's spontaneous. You know, the disciples are putting the clocks there, and all of a sudden, a chorus springs up, and people are saying, welcome, Jesus. And as he rides into Jerusalem, they, you know, we can imagine the whole city, you know, the world who are there in the eastern part of Jerusalem, they're all just waving branches. It's Passover, everybody's excited, and they are very excited to welcome King Jesus. These scenes here we are reading, by the way, they are reminiscent of what we read in 2 Kings, when King Jehu was received. You can read about that in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13. The people are so excited. And as we listen closely to the, to the words of the crowd, we see that they're expressing their desperate need for the king. The crowd are shouting, Hosanna! What does Hosanna mean, anyone? Huh? Indeed, save, I pray. That's what Hosanna means. And on the surface, they are rep- Wait, you, say, you sing Hosanna all the time. I hope you now know what it means. <laughs> sing what you know, right? <laughs> Pray with knowledge <laughs> and sing with knowledge, right? On the surface, they are repeating a common Passover greeting. But the historical, con- the historical context is here, here is that they are living under a very oppressive Roman military dictatorship. They have been longing for God's Messiah to arrive. They have been hoping for God to send a king who would restore the throne of David and establish his rule. And they now believe at this point, all they have seen of Jesus, all they've heard, they now believe Jesus is this king. And of course they are right. They are right that Jesus is God's anointed king. It's more than they think, but they are right about that. And in fact, Jesus is more than what they think. Jesus is God himself coming to rule over us. That's what this passage is teaching us. But in there, there's a point they have missed. The point they have missed is the us. Jesus is God himself coming to rule over us. Us. They are waiting for a king who will defeat their enemies the Romans, and establish a political government. They see their problem in life as simply poor, a poor cabinet which doesn't know what, they, what he's doing. They, they, that's what they think. But God sees things differently. Their problem is that they have wandered away from God. They need to be brought back into right relationship with God. The problem in, Jer- in Jerusalem is not the Roman governor's palace. The big problem in Jerusalem is the temple of God, as we'll see next week. They desperately need a king who himself will be the very temple of God and enable them 
And anyone who comes to Jesus to repent, to live and serve God again. And that is why as Jesus... Look, people call this a triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It's more accurate to say it's a triumphal entry into the temple in Jerusalem. Because what we see here is that Jesus comes to the end of his triumphal procession. He doesn't stop at someone's house. He, he stops at the temple because he has come to build a better one. Not a physical temple, but to erect the temple of himself. Look at verse 11. We'll just read the first part. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. Jesus is saying that I am God coming to rule over you. I am not here to fight your political battles. I am not here to purge Israel of foreign domination. No, I am here to purge sinners of their sin by my sacrificial death on the cross. Your greatest need is not political freedom. It is life with me. Your greatest need is not physical well-being. It's no more money in your pockets. It is to be restored and have peace with me. To live under my shalom. Now and forever. And the entrance of Jesus into the temple in Jerusalem is God's public invite to everyone, not just the Jews, but to everyone to come and enter his kingdom through the blood shed on the cross. That good Friday. Because a few days from now, this invitation will culminate on the cross where Jesus will die as the king for sinners. He will shed his blood for your sin and mine. Because you see, Jesus is within himself, the king who is both a priest and a sacrifice. Through his sacrificial blood shed on the cross, he can give us peace in his kingdom. We can have peace with God and the peace of God. That's what this truth is teaching us. Jesus is God coming to rule over us. So what does that mean for us today? What, what does it mean? I just want to draw two practical Lessons briefly for you uh, to apply to your lives. The first thing that this, this truth teaches that calls on us is that the, the, the declaration of the kingship of Jesus demands a response from all of us here this evening. Everyone here has to examine themselves. Have you truly welcomed Jesus as king in your life? Remember, welcoming Jesus means truly repenting and surrendering your life to him. How do I know that? Because it says that in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 to 15. Do you remember that verse? It says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the Kairos moment is fulfilled, the time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God, which is now declaring as he enters in Jerusalem, is at hand. How are we to respond to that? Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus' declaration of his kingship demands you repent. You truly repent. And the repentance king Jesus demands is not a regret or crying that we are in some terrible situation without, without a change in art. You know, children do this all the time, isn't it? 
they do something bad, you know, mom or dad tells them off, and immediately they say, sorry, but I'm sorry, dad, right? But of course, they haven't really changed. They are just feeling sorry. And many people think they are believers because they've done that. They've told Jesus we are sorry. That's not repentance. Or they've said a sinner's prayer. That's not repentance. There's been no change there. The repentance Jesus demands is not merely knowing that we are sinners before God. Some people are good at crying. They are good at crying about Jesus. And they can shed tears. But they may not have experienced the change. Some people know a lot about Jesus. But they're not truly repentant. The devil knows a lot about Jesus. Judas spent three and a half years with Jesus. But he was not repentant. You see, the repentance Jesus demands is the repentance we've seen with the woman of Tyre. It's the repentance we have seen with blind Bartimaeus. It's the repentance we saw to a degree with Jairus. It's a repentance we have been seeing throughout Mark. The reason we have these characters in Mark is to show us what true repentance is like, what true faith in Jesus is like. And what do we see when we see this character? We see that it is a 180 degree turn. The repentance Jesus demands is turning from walking in one direction to running in the opposite direction. To repent means to go before Jesus and place yourself at his mercy. Ask him to forgive you of your sins. Because he, sister, you can stay in the, in the service. Um, it's alright. Ask him to forgive you of your sin because he died for you on the cross. And from this point, God gives you a new heart that enables you to Think differently, believe differently, love differently, and live differently. We have to realize that true repentance results in the gathering moment. You know, the thing we saw in, in Mark chapter 5, when Jesus removes that demon from that person, the, the, the man who had been terrorized by evil spirits now sat before Jesus in his right mind. That's what true repentance does. When change happens... Jesus rearranges everything. You are now in your right mind. You think differently, believe differently, love differently. And I want to ask you this evening, Jesus is king, isn't it? Have you truly submitted to him in this way? Has change happened? I can't emphasize enough, beloved, that there is no such thing as salvation without lordship. To turn to Jesus is to accept him as Lord. Otherwise, what is it? You cannot have the Savior without the King. And so you must ask yourself, have I surrendered to Jesus as King? Now, this is an evening service and, you know, you have made huge effort to come. You came in the morning and some of you and you are here. And you may be puzzled that speaking to largely believers and children, that I'm emphasizing this point. But I have to emphasize this point. Even though some of you would be, if I said, oh, believers here, most of you would stand up. But I must emphasize it to you. Why? Because I'm saying this because singing publicly you belong to Jesus does not mean you belong to Jesus. 
Beloved, look clear, clearly at this crowd in front of us. They are waving palm branches. They are saying, Hosanna. They are saying, Jesus is king. And I will extol him, give him all the glory, and honor his name. But they are not converted. How do we know that? Because five days or so from now, they will be part of the crowd that chants, crucify him. Crucify the same Jerusalem crowd that has welcomed Jesus with loving hands will in five days crucify him. There's been no change. It's just emotionalism. And we must ask ourselves as we sit here this evening. Yes, the Bible says if we confess your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. But that confession must be a true confession that has resulted in a second genesis, a new heart. A rearranging of, the, of priorities in our life as a result of having that new heart. Proximity to Jesus, Judas warns us, does not result in salvation. Singing great hymns won't result in salvation. This crowd warns us. We must ensure we are truly born again. We must ensure that we have truly surrendered to Jesus and that God has opened our eyes. And beloved, I encourage you to, when you speak to friends, wives, husbands, children, be clear on this point if you yourself are clear. This is the gospel. And it cannot be watered down. It cannot be changed. This is what conversion looks like. Those who truly have Jesus as their king live changed lives under the authority of Jesus as king. That's the first thing we see here. It calls us to examine ourselves, examine people around us, and encourage them to surrender to Jesus. The second and final thing, this passage is encouraging all of us who have truly entered the kingdom of God to delight and celebrate. To celebrate Jesus as our king. You see, no matter how long we walk with Jesus, there are moments when issues of life try and steal our joy and delight as children of God. Maybe you are going through a sustained period of physical or mental illness that has left you feeling trapped, even as you sit here this evening. Perhaps you are in a situation at home or work that is leaving you feeling anxious. You are worried about what tomorrow holds. Or you might even be worried about your loved ones or where they are standing with the Lord. Maybe you had set goals for your life, your, your life personally, and you had great vision of the future. And they have not turned out as you expected. And yes, you have surrendered to Jesus, but sometimes you feel like a failure. Your dreams and goals, and they never came about. Or maybe simply, you have stumbled in some sin that has left you feeling down, no matter how much you confess that sin before God. Or maybe you, 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 you have moments where you, you struggle with assurance of your salvation. Because you look at your life and, and, and you, you want to be with Christ. You want to surrender more to Christ. And you look at your life and you're thinking, do I really know this Jesus? I long for more assurance. There are many situations that make 
truly born again believers sometimes not be as joyful or rejoicing as they should be. And I think that probably you're sitting here this evening, perhaps there's a situation that has just robbed you of that joy, uh, perhaps uh, recently. Well, this passage is reminding you, and remind me, is reminding me that no matter what life throws at us, even we are in Jesus, we have every reason to rejoice, every reason to wave those branches, every reason to delight in Jesus as our King, as the disciples are doing. God's design for your life in Jesus is that it should be a deep and growing flow of joy and delight of being a citizen in his kingdom. I wonder as you sit here this evening, are you learning, are you growing in celebrating and delighting in the kingship of Jesus? Right in the middle of your current circumstances. Are you finding joy in him? How do we do that? Well, I think just two things. First, it starts with remembering, isn't it? Remembering what God has done in Christ. Keep reminding yourself of the message of God. Keep reminding yourself of the gospel. Keep reminding yourself that Jesus is king and you belong to him. You see, and keep reminding yourself that our king is is your king not because of anything you have done. It is all grace. You see, you struggle to rejoice in your circumstances because this wonder of God's grace has not, doesn't always capture you, doesn't always seem to wrap itself around you as it should. You sometimes forget that you don't deserve God at all. And yet God has set you free. He has brought you under his kingship. You are now the apple of God's eye, regardless of what's going on in your life. When you start remembering such wonderful gospel truths as we are seeing here, you will see that you have every reason to rejoice, regardless of whatever situation you're in. And how do you express that? Well, there are many ways of expressing our joy in God, isn't it? But these people are reminding us, the disciples, we express our joy in God by giving him our whole, throwing our cloaks, giving him everything that we have, surrendering them to him, and above all, we start singing. Yes? Singing. I don't mean anything more than that. Start singing. As Peter, I'm sure, has joined in to sing. As sing, you know, as, uh, as, as, as Tadeus must be leading the singing, as Bartimaeus must be at the front, just singing and delighting in Jesus as king. Isn't that what people full of joy do? And delight? They sing. Yeah. When people win football or they, they win a rugby match, what do they do? They sing, don't they? If, they sing. They're delighted. They start singing. You don't tell them. They just start singing. Ole, ole, whatever. They sing, right? They sing. Well, when you win, you sing. In the, if you're not singing, it looks odd, right? Your team has won, you don't sing. You just, mm. I mean, that's strange, isn't it? You sing, you join the singing. In the same way, in the Bible, when God delivers his people, they sing. We see that in Judges chapter 5, actually. After God delivers them from the hand of Sisera, then people start singing, read by Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinamon. Same thing when God's people are delivered from Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 14 to 15. What do they do? Miriam leads them in a song. Singing is the natural response to the good news of Jesus. Because singing is one of the highest expressions. It is the highest expression of joy, we would say. 
So, so if you're delighting in Jesus, I say start singing to help you even delight more in Jesus. Sing aloud at church. Sing, learn to sing to God in your car, right? Sing in the garden. Sing aloud in the kitchen. Because you have been rescued, delivered. You have 150 psalms. Start with those, right? And when you sing, you should do it more than with lips. You should sing with your heart and mind at what God has done for you in Jesus. You know, you have more reason to sing out loud than the people on the streets of Jerusalem here. Because in Jesus, you know you are a child of the King of Kings. In Jesus, God now, God now lives in you. You are like in a union of marriage with God. As a child of his kingdom, you have inherited all God's eternal blessings in Christ. You are under his kingship. Which means that Jesus completely loves you. He completely delights in you. He completely approves of you. He completely accepts on you. Not because of anything you have done, but because of the blood shed on the cross for you. If that's not going to get you excited, not going to get you singing, nothing ever will. Heaven will be too boring for you. And you are not headed there really, I think. If you can't, that doesn't excite you. You are under his kingship. You were once outside his kingdom like the rest of the world. You are now happily in and resting in him. Jesus came for you, didn't he? With that one way love of his. He convinced you of your sin and made you repent and received you into his kingdom. And from then on, your relationship with Jesus has always been a one way love. It has always been God to you. It is all down to Jesus. Being a believer is amazing because this is all down on Jesus. 100%. You contribute nothing. The problem is sometimes you forget that. That even your perseverance in Christ is because of Jesus. Oh, beloved, think of how many times you have rejected Jesus. When you've let him down, Think how even this past week you went back to the spiritual vomit of sin in so many ways. And yet Jesus has brought you still, isn't it? He's still stuck to you. you. You are stuck to him. He's still loving you. Even though you continue to do him so much wrong. Borrowing from a reggae song as it were. Beloved, there is none like King Jesus. There is none like the God of Jeshurun, King Jesus, who rides across the heavens to our rescue. He loves and still loving you in Christ. So let this truth comfort you. Let it enable you to cry out for more of his grace. Let it enable you to delight and rejoice in Jesus. Because surely, Such a wonderful king deserves nothing less. Nothing less. The king has come. Welcome the king. What a privilege to have Jesus as our king. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen.